I call your attention this evening to Hebrews chapter 2. If you would, please turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2, as we continue making our way through this book, we will be looking this evening at verses 5 through 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we come now and we ask that by Your Spirit You would work in our hearts and in our minds, that we may hear the Word of the Lord and that You would circumcise our ears and our hearts, that we may hear, love, and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save our souls. Would you strengthen us against the temptations of Satan, the cares of the world, and the hardness of our own hearts? And may through it all, may we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we continue working our way through the book of Hebrews, I again remind you that the author has been making the argumentation of the superiority of Christ to the angels, primarily here in chapters 1 and 2. Last time we looked at verses 1 through 4, and he, he pauses this argumentation to draw out this word of exhortation, this challenge to pay attention to the message that we have heard lest we drift away from it. This evening, though, the question at hand then is how, how is Christ superior to the angels if He is a man? We recognize through chapter 1 as He constantly, using the Old Testament, identifies this Jesus as God Himself come. In the flesh, and thereby he is superior to the angels. 
But we also affirm that Jesus is both God and man. And in that sense, then, the author continues his argumentation to say, how is it that Jesus is superior still to the angels? And so we're going to consider this evening verses 5 through 9 under three different headings. And we're going to play off this language we see uh, in the text. The language of seeing. Three headings this evening. First, what we were supposed to see. Verses 5 through 8a. At the end there of his quotation of Psalm 8. Secondly, what we do not see. What we do not see, the end of verse 8. And then verse 9, thirdly, what we do see. What we were supposed to see, what we do not see, and what we see. First then, verse 5, the author says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are now speaking. Again, he is continuing his argumentation, now picking up after this word of exhortation in verses 1 through 4. And he's arguing now that Christ uses this language of man at a time in the future, namely the world to come, in that age, he says, man is actually over all things, not the angels, is his line of argumentation. The language here of the world to come that he uses in verse 5 is probably referencing to the age that is to come, the consummation. We can use the prophet Isaiah's language in chapter 65. The Lord speaking through the prophet says, Behold, I create, in the future he's speaking, I create new heavens and a new earth. And it is most likely then that this language of what is to come, in verse 5, the world to come, is that which lies in front of us. And then he continues on in verse 6, and he quotes the Old Testament. Now he quotes Psalm 8 to make his point. Here is the proof for his line of reasoning in verse 5. Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Here in Psalm 8, and if you would turn back there with me to Psalm 8, Psalm 8, David speaking, identifying the uniqueness of man, specifically man as he is made in the image of God. And if you're there in Psalm 8, keep your finger in Hebrews 2. Psalm 8, David begins the psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then verse 3, now David looks out into the world and he sees the, the, the heavens and the work of God. And he concludes, what is man? What is man? Man of, of dust, that you are mindful of him and that you care for him. And this text in Psalm 8, as many have noted, is most basically a, a divine commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. So I ask you one more time to flip back then to Genesis 1 and 2. It's Psalm 8 playing off that, which the author of Hebrews is utilizing in his text. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have further argumentation then for the uniqueness of man as he is made in the image of 
of God. And we see this in chapter 1. If you're there in Genesis, begin reading here in verse 21. And, and notice the contrast between, between what God has made in creation and man himself. Verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then skip down to verse 24. We find it again. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Here it is. According to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. According to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, we read that and we would expect he's about to create man. Man is going to be created according to its kind. But that's not what we read. Notice verse 26. Then God said, let us make man not according to its kind, but in our image after our likeness. We see then the unique function of man in God's cosmic plan. Man as he is made in the image of God and as he is to have, verse 26, dominion, and you see the repetition, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What is man? that you are mindful of Him, and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. It's quite interesting, is it not, as you look out into the landscape, even of our own context here in this country, that the notion of man made in the image of God is actually the very fundamental misunderstanding of so many of the current, quote, current Debates. If we think about the Holocaust of the genocide of millions upon millions of children in the womb. The fundamental flaw is that they don't see man in the image of God. Or we think about other areas, gender confusion, elevation of ethnic or national groups. All of these fail to realize that all mankind is made in the image of God. And when you forget this reality, there is chaos in our world. And see, the Christian, though, by God's grace and mercy, has Genesis 1 and 2 and can remind our brothers and sisters throughout the world that God made man, mankind, male and female, in his image. Now, the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 here, quoting Psalm 8, not only utilizes Psalm 8 to look, to look back upon what man was, but also Psalm 8 then, according to the author of Hebrews, has a forward look. You see, according to verse 5, man is to be the ruler over all things in the world to come. 
he actually sees that then playing out in Psalm 8. For man, though made for a little while lower than the angels in the age to come, he is going to be the ruler over all things. That is the argumentation. In other words, when man was created in the garden, though he had dominion over all things, there was to be an escalation of that dominion as he offers to God perfect and entire obedience. There would be a movement for Adam and Eve to greater and higher dimensions of dominion. You see then in verse 8, Our second point then, what we do not see. Notice what the author says. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. The inevitable question then as we read that is what happened? Why do we not see everything in subjection to man? And the answer is not found in Genesis 1 and 2, but in Genesis 3. As man disobeys God in the garden. There is a a reversal, as it were, so that man who would rule over the creation is now actually being ruled by that creation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks about this. Man's fall. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse, but notice here the language they use, and so made liable to all miseries in this life. Yes, lost communion with God, but also all the miseries that take place in this life, they are subject to, and most certainly one of these miseries is the fact that we now seem to be ruled by the creation rather than ruling over it. Natural disasters flood through the world. Sickness and plague running through countries and nations. Men taking advantage of other men and women. Theft and murder. All of these things are a reversal of the way things were to be. Something has gone wrong. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you talk with your friends and your neighbors, this is one area that formally they actually agree with us on, is it not? They see something has gone wrong in this world. Now, their interpretation of that is flawed because what they see is that something, this flawed world is not the way we see it through the sin of Genesis 3. You see, their flawed diagnosis of the world leads then to a flawed prescription of the world. Richard Phillips puts it this way, and I quote him in full. He says this, How do people identify the problem of this world? And what solutions do they envision? Is the problem that people are ignorant? Is it that people who are basically good are simply not enlightened with the right philosophy and culture needed to form a successful society? If that is the problem, then education is the solution. 
Or is the problem that people have had bad childhood experiences, that dysfunctional environments have warped otherwise healthy creatures? If that is the problem, then social re-engineering is the most appropriate solution. Or again, is poverty the problem? Is it true that people's most basic needs are not being met, so they never get the chance to develop high-order skills that will make them model citizens? If so, then surely redistribution is a good remedy. You see, if the, if the solution, if the problem, excuse me, is found in, on the surface, then the solution is also on the surface. If the problem is merely cultural, psychological, or political, then of course these things can be solved through those means. But what the world fails to see, and what we sometimes fail to see in the church, is that man's most basic problem is not cultural, psychological, or political. It is a sin problem. Man's most most basic need is in his separation from a holy and righteous God. But there is hope, isn't there? There's hope. Did you see it? Did you see it in the text? Just one word. Verse 8. At present, we do not yet See everything. You see, even in the midst of a world corrupted by the curse, there is hope. It is found in that little word, yet. There will be a time. There will be a time when the sin problem, when all things will be again subjected to man. This is what the Scriptures then are about, is it not? After Genesis 3, Who will come onto the scene? Where will the man that we need come? Go through the Scriptures time and time again. You have flawed figures. You have David. You have Moses. All of these figures time and time again fail. But there is hope. There is hope in the man that Paul calls the last Adam. The man from heaven who comes. And He solves this sin problem. He comes onto the scene. And coming onto the scene, He does not come and and rules over all, but He is actually subjected to all things. To sin and to death. He takes upon sin, though He Himself sinless. He comes under, as it were, this sinful world in order to redeem it. So there is hope. And that then leads us to our third point. What do we see? Look with me at verse 9. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. We do not yet see it. When will the the yet come about? The author says, we presently see it. 
The verb here is in, is in the present tense. We presently have a solution, and His name is Jesus Christ. God has not left us without hope. But the interesting part is that the solution we needed is not the solution we wanted. We did not want this solution, for we ourselves were, were confounded in our sin, blind and dead. But God, God so loved the world. This world, this fallen world, He loved with such a great love that He would send His only Son to this world, a world that if He came, they would seek to kill Him. That's precisely what this world sought to do and did, putting Him to death upon the cross. But it was the love of God in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who unlike the first Adam in the garden, was the the greater prophet who who hearkened unto the word of the Lord and not the word of the serpent. As the, the greater high priest, he came and he served God and offered to God proper worship. And as the greater king, he exercises dominion where Adam fell in the garden. He not only undoes what Adam did in the garden, but He does what Adam failed to do in the garden. Do you know this, Jesus, my friends? Do you know this, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor? Love the words we just sang. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. Man of sorrows, See Him now. This is the great message of the Gospel, is it not? But then the author of Hebrews continues on to answer this question, how does this exaltation, namely being crowned with glory and honor, how does this come about? And here is the reversal of what we think would happen. You see, the way in which the exaltation of Christ comes about, the author says, is through suffering. It is through and by means of humiliation that our Lord is exalted. Philippians chapter 2 speaks about this as well here as Hebrews chapter 2. This being made lower than the angels. Paul puts it this way, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. This is the incarnation. This is the opening stage of the way in which this exaltation would ultimately come about. It's through, first, the incarnation. The way all things would be subjected to him would be By Him being subjected to all things. And then we see, the author continues then, not only the incarnation is the first stage, but secondly, the crucifixion. Verse 9, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death 
for everyone. So we have the incarnation, and secondly, we have the crucifixion. But this language is tricky, and I don't want to skip over it. This language of tasting death for everyone. Well, who is everyone? Many see this as a text which indicates that when Christ went to the cross, he offered a sacrifice for all men at all times. This is seeming to be very clear. He tasted death for everyone. But who is the everyone of verse 9? The everyone is actually clarified throughout the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 10. The everyone then for whom Christ tasted death are, verse 10, the sons. Or in verse 11, those he sanctified. Or in verse 11 again, his brothers. Or in verse 12, it is the congregation. Or in verse 13, it is the children. Or in verse 16, the sons of Abraham. Or in verse 17, it is the people that he actually makes propitiation for. This is the everyone for whom Christ died. You see, Christ's redemptive work on the cross was limited in its extent, but not in its intent. All those for whom Christ died for are ultimately saved. They are the ones whom He actually redeems. Not one drop of the blood of Christ was shed on the cross of Calvary. But this text also provides us, I think, a unique perspective upon Christ's work on the cross. It connects, in a causal fashion, Jesus' suffering on the cross with His being crowned with glory and honor. You see, the way we tend to think, the way it is even put throughout Scripture, is it that Christ died, then He was raised, then He was glorified. That's all well and good. That's true. That's a fact of Scripture. But here, the author says, the reason that He was crowned with glory and honor is actually because of His death. Because of His suffering, He was crowned with glory and honor. That reality shows us that God is, is just to, to give life as He promised. The one who does the works of the law shall live by them. Because Christ lived, because He lived a perfect life, He is rewarded with the crowning of glory and honor. And it was because of His suffering. Because of His cross. And that then leads us to the third reality Namely, the exaltation. Jesus Christ, as we see Him, crowned with glory and honor. This is what He spoke about to His disciples in Matthew's Gospel. And the, what we speak about is the Great Commission. And commission all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples. In light of the fact that I am ruler over both heaven and earth, go and make disciples. But what is true of man, according to the author of Hebrews in verse 8, namely that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, is also true, in a sense, 
of Christ's reign. He is ruler over all things, but we do not yet presently see that manifested in the world. But we know it. We are told of this. And so we currently, the believers presently, live in this period of time where Christ is ruler and reigning over both heaven and earth, but we do not yet see that fully manifested yet. And so Paul then can tell us we live by faith and not by sight. But we know that this is our Father's world. Oh, let us ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is still the ruler yet. And Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. And so as we go out from here, may we never forget that there is, as Abraham Kuyper has put it, not one square inch of this world over which Christ does not yell, Mine. And though we do not presently see it, we march forward as those who serve in His kingdom, as His kingdom is moving out into the world, And it is reaching parts of the world so that from the four winds of the earth, the elect of God will be gathered together for that great day that is coming. That great marriage supper of the Lamb. But the way in which this kingdom manifests itself is not by means of the sword. It is by means of the sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. This is victory. This is victory. So, may we go out then with the words of Jesus from John 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let us pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. We thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and His work for us as the last Adam. We pray that we would live as those in His kingdom here and now faithfully for the glory of the Lord as we await the the subjection of all things to You, O God. Openly, manifested in the coming age. We pray that Your Spirit would be with us and in us, molding us and fashioning us after the image of Christ our Savior. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.